everyone, Big E here. Welcome back to the podcast, Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Uh, this is our new podcast. We haven't even officially launched it yet. We're on episode six, and uh, already we're getting lots of good response from people. Uh, in fact, today's episode topic, we're going to talk about the future of use of force law, is a topic that people have suggested, have written in and, and said, hey, can you cover this? Can you talk about this? So happy to do it. Happy to provide that for you guys. If you've got ideas for this podcast, things that you want to hear, hey, reach out and let me know. We're happy to make it useful for you. I've never done this before, a podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers and sheriff, but sheriffs, but I, you know, I consume podcasts all the time. I love learning that way. I love listening to audiobooks and, you know, you guys are stuck out there in your cars, you're stuck out on calls, you're stuck waiting for things to happen. Um, or stuck, you know, working out, maybe you just haven't just work running or working out or on a uh, elliptical or whatever. And uh, this is a great way to learn great way to uh, hopefully you'll find it to be useful. And I want it to be useful for you. Because in my experience, you know, this this podcast is for officers who want to do it right. And there's, there's a lot of you out there who strive to every day to be better, and find new ways to strengthen and serve your communities. Uh, so that's the purpose of the, of the of the podcast to help you guys out give you guys some uh, insights, information, and uh, and help you guys get better. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the future of use of force law in Virginia and the future future of force use of force law in the federal system. We've been talking in the last few episodes. We've got five episodes under our belt here. We've been talking about use of force law under federal law. We talked about Graham versus Connor, use of non-deadly force, deadly force, Tennessee versus Garner. We've talked about Virginia law. Uh, common law, we talked about civil lawsuits, and we talked about criminal prosecutions in Virginia for use of force for, by law enforcement officers. So, you know, what does the future hold? That's what a lot of people have been asking, you know, what's going on uh, in the state, what's going on federally? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think any of us know what's going to happen. You know, things change week to week, day to day sometimes now. But I want to give you guys sort of two uh, examples, two things to think about, and two ways to understand the changes and what's at stake here in these changes. Uh, what can happen in Virginia with respect to civil liability, but especially with respect to criminal liability? And I'm going to give you an example of what's happened uh, from California and talk about a California statute and what it actually says, and then sort of help and how that can help to frame or change the law about use of force in Virginia. And then I'm going to talk about in the second half about what ha what's happening with qualified immunity and what is at stake and what can change in the federal system regarding qualified immunity for law enforcement officers for use of deadly force and non-deadly force in civil lawsuits under uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983. So like I said, I'm going to start out by talking about uh, state law. And California is oftentimes considered to be, you know, a bellwether, a place where new ideas are put into effect and they make their way across the country. And some of those ideas make it and some of those ideas don't make it. Um, so, you know, we certainly saw decriminalization and legalization of marijuana start out in California and make its way. Well, actually, it was decriminalized in Maine in the 1970s. But, you know, the, the movement sort of picked up in California and moved its way across Colorado, Washington State, and so on. Um, there was a statute passed by the... California legislature last year on police use of force, and it got a lot of attention. And that attention was mostly, as it always is, from people who don't really spend the time to read the statute and don't really understand what the terms mean. And so a lot of people, you know, panicked about it or thought it was, didn't go far enough or thought it went too far or, you know, hated the idea or loved the idea. I doubt many people really understood exactly what it said. But I wanted today sit down and actually talk about 
what does that statute actually say? If we were to adopt this in Virginia, what effect would it have on Virginia law enforcement officers? Um, So that's what I want to do for the first half of the podcast today. This statute was passed and went into effect in August of 2019 in uh, California. And it concerns the use of both deadly force and non-deadly force, but especially deadly force, by law enforcement officers in California. The bill essentially redefined the circumstances under which a homicide by a police officer is deemed justifiable. And it did so, uh, redefined it to include when the officer reasonably believes, based on the totality of the circumstances, that deadly force is necessary to defend against an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or someone else, or to apprehend a fleeing person for a felony that threatened or resulted in the death or serious bodily injury, um, if the officer reasonably believes that the person will cause death or serious bodily injury to another person, unless that person is immediately apprehended. It also affirmatively prescribes the circumstances under which a law enforcement officer is authorized to use deadly force to effect an arrest or to prevent escape or to overcome resistance. So this bill was intended and put into place uh, by people who were advocating for a change in how law enforcement officers were evaluated, especially in criminal cases, but also in civil cases, uh, for their use of deadly force. And of course, any law enforcement officer, a use of deadly force that results in someone's death is a homicide, right? And in Virginia, a homicide can either be justified or not justified. If it's justified, it's oftentimes justified as self-defense. So if an individual is breaking into my house and I'm just a private citizen and the person comes into my house and they've got a deadly weapon and they come running at me and I shoot them dead, that's still a homicide. It's just a self-defense homicide. In Virginia, if you're a law enforcement officer, you respond to a domestic call and a guy comes out of his house and he's got a shotgun and he says, you know, get away from my house, I'm going to kill you and raises the shotgun and tries to kill you. Um, you kill that, you shoot and kill that person in, in self-defense, essentially. Um, again, that's still a homicide. It's just a justifiable homicide. So in California, what they attempt to do is redefine under what circumstances a homicide is justified. And so they enact a change to the California Penal Code that provides that homicide is justifiable when committed by law enforcement officers under one of two circumstances, um, either uh, in obedience to a judgment of a competent court um, or when the homicide results with a use of force that is compliant with this new section, right? So in in obedience with a judgment of a competent court is essentially you're carrying out the death penalty, um, but uh, which doesn't exist in California anymore anyway. But the second is when you have acted um, in compliance with the newly enacted um, use of force standards that are in uh, this new code section. So I'm going to read you what the what is written in this code section. They made a couple of declarations in it before they talked about the specific. Um, one of the declarations is that in determining whether deadly force is necessary, officers shall evaluate each situation in light of the particular circumstances of each case and shall use other available resources and techniques if reasonably safe and feasible to an objectively reasonable officer. So originally, this code section required that officers use de-escalation techniques before using deadly force. And it no longer requires that. That was not adapted adopted in the final bill. Instead, you have uh, two provisions here. One is you, you shall evaluate the totality of the circumstances. And second of all, you shall use other available resources if reasonably safe and feasible. So you shall use you know, non-deadly force if safe and if feasible. Uh, as, and again, the standard here also 
and this is a this for California was an important change. All of these standards are going to be based on a standard of objective reasonableness, not subjective fear, not subjectively what you think. Now you might say, well, isn't that what the standard is already? Well, in California, it wasn't entirely clear. Under the federal system, however, in the system that you're operating, your uses of force are always judged under objective standards. So for you, if you're thinking, well, I'm always going to be judged according to objective reasonableness, the answer is, yeah, you're in federal system, you are, and this wouldn't be that much of a change. The, co the, the code section goes on to say that the decision by a peace officer to use force shall be evaluated from the perspective of a reasonable officer in the same situation based on the totality of the circumstances known to or perceived by the officer at the time rather than the benefit of hindsight and that the totality of the circumstances shall account for occasions when officers may be forced to make quick judgments about using force. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. That language is almost taken directly from Graham versus Connor, the 1989 use of force case that we covered in an earlier uh, podcast. The code section uh, acknowledges and states, and I'm getting quoting, individual, individuals with physical, mental health, developmental, or intellectual disabilities are significantly more likely to experience greater levels of physical force during police interactions as their disability may affect their ability to understand or comply with commands of police officers. But it doesn't specifically require you to do anything different. It just recognizes the fact that people who are emotionally disturbed or have um, mental health difficulties and so on are at a greater danger of uh, having force used against them. It states, any peace officer who has reasonable cause to believe that the person to be arrested has committed a public offense may use objectively reasonable force to effectuate the arrest, to prevent escape, or to overcome resistance. Again, this is not a surprise. This is directly pretty much from Graham versus Connor. The code section provides, notwithstanding that section I just read, a peace officer is used to, justified in using deadly force upon another person only when the officer reasonably believes, based on the totality of the circumstances, that such force is necessary for either of the following situations, either for the reasons. Number one, to defend against an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or another person. Or two, to apprehend a fleeing felon, fleeing person for any felony that is that is that threatened or resulted in death or serious bodily injury if the officer reasonably believes that the person will cause death or serious bodily injury to another unless immediately apprehended. And in that situation, where feasible, a peace officer shall, prior to the use of force, make reasonable efforts to identify themselves as a peace officer and to warn that deadly force may be used unless that officer has objectively reasonable grounds to believe the person is aware of those facts. So, again, notice, this is just Tennessee versus Garner, right? Um, number one, that you can use deadly force to defend against imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to you or somebody else. That's literally what Tennessee versus Garner says. And second of all, if you reasonably believe, based on totality of circumstances, that it's necessary to apprehend a fleeing person who's committed a felony results in death or serious bodily injury if there's a danger to others, again, that's just, you know, extensions of Tennessee versus Garner. This... Warning, the requirement of giving a warning where feasible and identify yourself where feasible. Um, this comes from many cases in the Ninth Circuit that require this warning. But notice the warning is attached to um, using deadly force against a fleeing person. So if the person is running away from you, the court is saying, I mean, the, the code is saying that you have to give the warning and identify yourself. And again, you only have to do that if feasible under the circumstances. So here again, they're pretty much restating the existing law as it is. 
Um, it goes on to state a peace officer shall not use deadly force against a person based on the danger that person poses to themselves if a objectively reasonable officer would believe that the person does not pose an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to the peace officer or someone else. In other words, if you're dealing with, for example, an emotionally disturbed person who's got a knife to their own throat, it doesn't make sense to use deadly force against them uh, just simply to stop them from, state, from, from stabbing themselves. Don't stab yourself. I'm going to stab myself. Well, then I'm going to shoot you. That's a use of deadly force. So what, I'm going to kill you to stop you from killing yourself doesn't make much sense. But again, if it appears the person has turned the knife on someone else and is trying to stab that person and kill that person or cause them serious bodily injury, then the deadly force would be potentially justified. So again, this is not really a surprise. The code section adds this provision as well. Um, a peace officer who makes or attempts to make an arrest need not retreat or desist from their efforts by reason of the resistance or threatened resistance of the person being arrested. A peace officer shall not be deemed an aggressor or lose the right to self-defense by the use of objectively reasonable force in compliance with these uh, with this code section to effect the arrest or to prevent the escape of someone to overcome resistance. So this code, this provision here basically says you don't forfeit as a law enforcement officer the ability to defend yourself just because you're the one who went and, you know, provoked the situation because you put handcuffs on this person or you try to arrest this person or you try to detain this person in the course of a lawful investigative detention. This code section essentially answers the question that we brought up last time in the Rankin case. So you might remember there was a case in Portsmouth where an officer tried to arrest somebody for larceny. The person struggled with them. And during the course of the struggle, when the uh, individual attempted to attack the officer, the officer used deadly force in self-defense. And the court said, well, you look at whether or not the defense is reasonable. And I raised the question, well, in Virginia, we have two kinds of self-defense. We have self-defense with fault and self-defense without fault. When you're not at fault and bringing on the difficulty, then you don't have to retreat. You have no requirement to retreat and you can defend yourself in Virginia. There's no um, we, don't, we don't have a castle doctrine, but we also don't have a requirement that anybody retreat and under any circumstances to defend themselves. But we do require people to retreat when they are at fault in bringing on the difficulty. If I start a fight with somebody and then it results in uh, the person using, you know, or threatening deadly force against me, I have to retreat before I use deadly force against them. And the Rankin case doesn't distinguish, doesn't really say which kind of deadly, which kind of self-defense rule applies to law enforcement. But this code section specifically says we don't consider law enforcement at fault because they're doing their job. They're responding to a call. They're responding to uh, evidence of a criminal offense. They don't lose their ability to defend themselves just because they were engaging in law enforcement, which is what we pay them to do. So notice here that this code section, um, which again caused a lot of alarm, doesn't make a lot of changes. It does introduce this word necessary, that the, the use of deadly force has to be necessary. But it does so again saying it's necessary based on the uh, Tennessee versus Garner standard, essentially, that you, know, you have an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to you or somebody else. And so other than inserting that word necessary, and a lot of questions exist as to whether or not the insertion of that word really means anything. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't use deadly force if you didn't think it was necessary to stop the person from killing someone. Um, you know, if it's got some, you know, 98-year-old woman who's on a walker who's, you know, slightly moving her walker and she's saying oh, she's going to kill somebody with a knife and you don't have to use deadly force, but you use it anyway, you know, query whether or not that th there was really an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury from this woman on this walker. Um, I don't think it would have met the standard for deadly force under Tennessee versus Garner if it wasn't necessary anyway, but that's going to be for the courts in California to resolve 
what does that word necessary mean and does it really change anything? So, you know, that's an example of how a legislature can make a change, an example of how legislatures have made changes to use of force law at the state level. Uh, and certainly you could be more extreme and you could do uh, a lot of things. You could <clears throat> you could change that. You could put a lot of requirements in. There were desires in California, for example, again, to put in restrictions like officers have to use de-escalation uh, techniques or they have to use some non-deadly alternative and so on. But all of those were rejected, and that's what we were left with. I'm going to talk a minute uh, about um, the qualified immunity and what's going on with the qualified immunity doctrine and sort of the attacks on it. But before I do, uh, I do want to say, take a minute and, um, and and reach out to those of you who, you know, if you're out there right now and you are feeling like, you know, the world is against you and there is no reason to keep on going, mm. um, you know, there are people out there who are, you know, you need to talk talk to other people, talk to other officers. Don't let yourself get to a situation where you don't feel like there's any point in going on anymore. And in specifically, I want to talk today about Copline. And this is a, a helpline. It is strictly confidential. It's a it's an international law enforcement officers hotline manned entirely by retirement law enforcement officers to, you know, to help you reach out and have someone to talk to if you feel like you're in crisis, if you feel like there's no reason to go on. Um, you know, last year we lost uh, two, over 200, 228 police officers to suicide, and that's just not acceptable. We can't lose any of you. Um, each one of you is valuable and precious to us. We can't lose any of you, and, you know, that number, 228, is insane. If you think about the year before, we'd lost 178 officers, um, and, and these numbers are going up. Uh, you can see the stress. You can see the toll that uh, is being is, is being exacted on our law enforcement officers, our public servants. You know, the people at Copline are here to help. Um, if you want to give them a call, they're at 800-COPLINE. That's 800-267-5463. Again, 800-267-5463, 1-800-COPLINE. If you know somebody who's struggling, um, you know, help them pass on this number and let them know uh, they're, uh, that's a great resource. Or you can check them out um, online at www.copline.org. Again, that's C-O-P-L-I-N-E, copline.org. So like I said, I wanted to talk in the second half of this podcast about qualified immunity and what's going on with it and the attacks and so on. You have seen and some people have reached out and said, hey, can you tell me more about uh, what's going on with the um, sort of movement to repeal or remove or get rid of qualified immunity. We talked about qualified immunity in earlier podcasts, and it's essentially the doctrine that you cannot successfully proceed in a lawsuit against law enforcement officers unless you can demonstrate this is the this is the constitutional right um, of which I was deprived, and that right was clearly established at the time that the officer violated my rights. Um, so, for example, you know, you saw a lot of people saying when the new uh, gun bills were enacted in by the General Assembly, this is a violation of my Second Amendment rights, and, you know, isn't this a violation of the Constitution? You know, can I sue law enforcement officers for enforcing these code sections for a violation of my Second Amendment rights? And the answer is no, if the law enforcement officers are relying on clearly established, you know, uh, code sections, clear language, and they can, the officers are entitled to rely upon what's the written law, um, what are the written decisions by courts in enforcing the law. So if somebody brought such a lawsuit, that lawsuit would be dismissed. 
um, in a you know situation where you you know uh, somebody didn't like the fact that they were that you're enforcing immigration laws they don't like that they would sue you know potentially let's say they would sue an immigration officer a um, INS agent uh, immigration and naturalization service agent for in uh, violating the rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution against unreasonable search and seizure, the response of the court would be, well, the, you know, the law about this is uh, relatively clear, and it's not clear, <clears throat> it wouldn't be clear to any officer that they were violating somebody's rights. And unless it's clear to the officer they're violating somebody's rights, the case is going to get dismissed. But there's been a lot of criticism of that doctrine, and that criticism has been increasing over the last 10 or 15 years. The criticism has been joined by two justices of the Supreme Court, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas, who are on pretty extreme ends of the spectrum, right? So Justice Sotomayor dissents a lot in cases she dissents very much in a liberal wing, right? She does not like, um, you know, she's dissented a lot from search and seizure cases, finding that her argument is she doesn't like law enforcement being given the um, authority to do lots of different searches under the Fourth Amendment. On the other hand, Justice Thomas is a very conservative judge, and both of them have criticized the qualified immunity doctrine. Justice Thomas has written two dissents in the last few years uh, from denials of cert where he has argued that the qualified immunity doctrine doesn't really have a basis in law at all, that it's essentially made up, it's a policy decision by the court, and because it's a policy decision, he doesn't like it, he, want, he thinks it should go away. So let me explain what Justice Thomas's position is and then uh, explain what sort of the different attempts are to, to change or remove qualified immunity. So you might remember when I talked about qualified immunity, it's an objective test, right? So you look not at the good, whether the officers were acting in good faith, but whether an objective officer, a reasonable officer at the time that the uh, offense took place or the action took place um, would have thought that what they were doing was lawful or unlawful. You, however, might remember that when I talked a couple of episodes ago about the history of qualified immunity, it starts with this case Pearson versus Ray in the 1960s, where they talk about the defense of good faith and how good faith was traditionally a defense that officers could argue in court under the common law. So good faith is essentially more of a subjective test. And good faith, the court gets rid of the good faith defense in the 1980s. So the court sort of starts out by saying, well, qualified immunity existed under the common law. Qualified immunity was a defense that's always existed for law enforcement officers who are following their duties and who are doing what the law has instructed them to do. And so we should look at their good faith in evaluating qualified immunity. And then in the 1980s, the court says, mm, actually, no, not good faith. We should look at it from an objective reasonableness standpoint. That's what the qualified immunity standard says. You should look at it objectively reasonably. And so today we're in this situation where qualified immunity is purely an objective standard. And Justice Thomas says, well, if it's an objective standard, that's never existed before. That's just made up by the court in the 1980s. That was never under common law a defense. It wasn't a defense when this statute was enacted in 1871. It wasn't a defense uh, for 100 years under the statute until the 1980s. So where does it come from? And Justice Thomas thinks the court just made it up. And the court has defended qualified immunity in rulings many times in the last 20 years by saying that qualified immunity serves important societal purposes, um, basically arguing for why it's good policy. But someone like Justice Thomas doesn't like courts enacting uh, or holding, you know, creating the law based on policy. Justice Thomas wants it to be based on either what the text of the law says or, you know, what the common law was at the time of the enacting of the statute. So going back to the 1870s, he said there was no immunity defense for law enforcement officers, and there wasn't at the time, and it's not in the statute, so it shouldn't exist at all.
And uh, many other commentators have joined him and have said and have complained that the qualified immunity doctrine is, is, is gotten to be too difficult for plaintiffs to overcome. So you might remember, uh, for example, Wilson versus Prince George's County, an officer shoots an individual who is coming at him with a knife, but the individual is stabbing himself with the knife, cutting at himself with the knife. And the court says, well, we don't view that as a lawful use of force, but we've never made an announcement before. So it's not been clearly established that you can't use deadly force in that circumstance. Therefore, we're dismissing the lawsuit, even though we find that the use of force was unlawful. Well, the plaintiff in that case might say, well, then, you know, that was a very unique set of facts. How is it that officers are supposed to be evaluated when every single case is decided according to its exact facts? Next week, if an individual is shot who's um, holding a gun to himself instead of a knife, what will be the, what will, what will, you know, would the use of force be lawful or unlawful? Well, if it has never been a case decided by the courts before where that's been the exact facts, then um, under the sort of modern formulation of the qualified immunity doctrine, a lot of people would argue then the case should be dismissed because there's never been uh, a decision under those facts before. And if that's the case, then it, you know qualified immunity essentially becomes immunity, uh, de facto immunity for all law enforcement officers. That's the argument. Now, obviously, that's not the way that it's really going out there in the world. Certainly, a lot of cases are getting dismissed on qualified immunity grounds, but a lot of cases are still going forward despite the qualified immunity doctrine. Um, nevertheless, obviously, perception is important in the, in, the annals, in the halls of Congress, and there are efforts to repeal qualified immunity. The Supreme Court had the opportunity this year in several cases, I think there were six cases pending before it, where it could have taken up the Qualified Immunity Doctrine and decided to either amend it or change it or get rid of it, and it completely refused to hear any of those six cases. So the Supreme Court's not going to be hearing or deciding Qualified Immunity this year, we don't think, in the next year at least. But there is a proposal in Congress um, and one of them, there are many proposals in Congress, one of them is called the End Qualified Immunity Act. There are other ones proposed, there's other proposals. Um, this one is interesting because it literally just eliminates qualified immunity. It's sponsored by Representative Justin Amash in the House of Representatives, and it has about 50 people who've signed on to it. What it would do, remember the remember the 42 U.S.C. 1983 is a code section enacted by Congress. So Congress can define what is and isn't a defense. Uh, under this code section. So they are free to make changes to that code section that would allow people to bring more lawsuits or fewer lawsuits if they want to. This section, this proposal, would add at the end of 42 U.S.C. 1983 the following statement. It shall not be a defense or immunity to any action brought under this section that the defendant was acting in good faith or that the defendant believed reasonably or otherwise that his or her conduct was lawful at the time it was committed. Nor shall it be a defense or immunity that the rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution's laws were not clearly established at the time of their deprivation by the defendant, or that the state of the law was otherwise such the defendant could not reasonably have been expected to know whether or not her conduct was lawful. So notice that this explicitly would say that you could be found to be liable even if the state of the law said that what you were doing was lawful. So if the statute said what you were doing is lawful and the court cases said what you were doing is lawful, nonetheless, the jury could find that what you did was unlawful and find you to be liable um, in, a, in a lawsuit in the federal system if this were the law. 
right? So, you know, again, going back to the examples I gave you before, um, Second Amendment lawsuit, somebody in Idaho decides to sue an ATF agent saying, you enforcing these federal laws violates my Second Amendment rights. Could I go to trial on this? Well, if this were the defense, then yeah, you could. And you could try to get damages, punitive damages against ATF agents um, from an Idaho jury for violating your Second Amendment rights. In fact, you can bring these lawsuits in state court. You could do that in a, if you found a Second Amendment-friendly uh, you know, jurisdiction in Virginia. You could sue uh, with a you know, judge or a jury in that jurisdiction and try to get an injunction against the enforcement of uh, a, a Virginia statute that you think violates the Second Amendment, even if the law clearly says, you know, you shall do, shall have background checks before purchases or felons can't have guns. You could say that's a violation of the Second Amendment, and if you get a judge jury to agree, you can get an injunction, you can get civil damages, you can get punitive damages. Um, if you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't uh, you know, that doesn't agree with the immigration laws. Uh, you could sue a federal immigration officer or indeed a jailer who uh, turns over a convicted felon who's not lawfully in the United States to uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Service. You know, that person could theoretically sue and it wouldn't be a defense that, well, this is what the law directed me to do. I was doing what I thought was lawful under the time. I was directed to do it. It was my duty. Well, it wouldn't be a defense under this version. So, um, you know, obviously this is one proposal. Um, there are many other proposals, but you're going to, you know, Congress will have to figure out what to do to, uh, to address this if they're going to address it at all. And, uh, you know, the Senate and the House will have to agree. Uh, many senators have said that getting ending qualified immunity is, an, is a, I think the quote was non-starter. There's no way that they're going to do it. But, you know, uh, the question is what could happen in the future? Um, and I think it helps to understand what some of the proposals are out there um, because obviously, you know, things can change pretty fast. So that's a little insight into the potential future of qualified immunity in the United States. Uh, right now, the Supreme Court has not uh, withdrawn its support for that doctrine, but Congress could. In Virginia, we obviously the state legislature doesn't have any control over qualified immunity, but they do have the ability to uh, provide standards or set up their own standards for the use of force, either deadly force or non-deadly force in Virginia. And so, uh, in fact, there's one proposal to, you know, spe specify uh, getting rid of chokeholds, for example, in Virginia. And there's a federal statute about that too, right? So the General Assembly could do that if they wanted to. And uh, it remains to be seen what they will do. So I hope that was useful for you guys. I hope that was a chance to at least look at some potential uh, changes that might be coming down the way and how to understand those changes. If you have ideas, things that you want to hear me cover in the future, let me know. Reach out to me. and I want to make this podcast as useful as I can for you. The next few episodes are going to be about marijuana decriminalization. We're going to talk about searches of persons, searches of cars, searches of places. We're going to talk about issuing summonses and arrests, obstruction of justice. And so hopefully it'll be a good chance to kind of go through and review some basic Fourth Amendment law and take a deep dive into the issues that decriminalization poses. Um, I do want to cover a lot of topics in this, so please let me know what's going to be useful. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. But that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.